0: Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Today we have a special Halloween episode with all three of our hosts. They talk about scary things like complex phishing schemes and exciting things like the wealth of knowledge within the InfoSec community. There's even a sweet treat for those who stick around to the end of the episode. Follow the human side of cybersecurity with the Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast.
1: Welcome to this Halloween special episode of The Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we talk to the people behind the keyboards in cybersecurity to find out what motivates them, keeps them up at night, and what they've learned in dealing with real-world threats. For this Halloween special, we've managed the truly terrifying feat of coordinating all three co-hosts' diaries and getting a slot with us all together, so hopefully we'll be able to shine some light amongst the fear, uncertainty, and doubt that abounds within the industry. So welcome to my co-host, the mysterious Mark Mayfrey, and the crip-kicking Carl Lankford. Welcome, guys.
0: What's up, dude? Hiya! And it, and it is magical that we're all through here. It's like Tetris trying to get it to line up perfectly. Absolutely. But it worked. It's like Christmas come <laughs> early. Like
2: Halloween's a special day for us all, I think. <laughs> indeed, indeed.
1: <laughs> so why don't we kick off this uh, session, this discussion, with what spooked you in the world of cyber recently? Carl?
2: Oh, so phishing recently. Like I I always pride myself on like I could probably spot a phishing attempt quite well. And I've seen some really complex, sophisticated phishing emails coming through, and I had like a little chat about this. And was thinking, uh, is it is it still a realistic expectation to train all of your staff to be experts in counter deception and to spot a phishing email, or or should we just try and prevent the noise? Right. That I was kind of thinking about that at length, and it's like people people are always going to be quite vulnerable to that attack. Like, and I think. Trying to expect them to be perfect every time it's spotting it is a really unrealistic goalpost. And actually, you should be looking at defense in depth that helps stop the the or, or gives you the resilience of systems that will help a user, not just put all of the pressure onto them. So yeah, it's been quite, I don't know, quite scary. I haven't seen a decent phishing email in ages. They normally, like when they come through to me, they're like, oh, hi, click here, this is Dropbox, whatever. But no, this was actually... Targeted, really quite good. Um, pretty exciting stuff, and, and scary. And of
0: and course, if phishing's if the, uh, the the scary thing for Halloween, then uh, the, the the gift of Christmas or whatever holiday gift that you might be into should be uh, FIDO two uh, for organizations. So, so you can get beyond the uh, worrying about hoping that people are going to know what links to click on. I always find that it like a, it's a, it's a funny proposition that like you know most of us that like do security for a living like. Anybody that thinks you're not accidentally going to click on a link or get it wrong once or so on and so forth, right? Like it's going to happen. And so it's, uh, uh, how do you adopt technologies like FIDO2 and other things that are just much more, uh, resistant, if you will, than, uh, you know, even your, uh, push to FA and, and things of that nature. So yeah, absolutely. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's crazy. That's a, that's one that's been, uh, been something for a very long time, um, long time coming. And there's still, uh, you know, it's easy, um, to say like go do fido 2 but it, it's still very hard in practice there's so many apps and things that don't work right i won't name any you know specific vendors that are embedding like ancient uh uh ancient versions of uh chrome and things that don't support it but in- anyways um <laughs> what would be my scary thing yeah what's hmm. your scary thing Matt? Is it is it ancient embedded Chrome
2: versions in applications? Or <laughs> might
0: is it might be different?
2: that. <laughs> might be that.
0: Chrome as universal desktop app. <laughs> that might be the uh, that might be one of the <laughs> many scary things out there. Now I think it's always interesting when I when I when I think of uh there was just some new volumes I was looking at yesterday. And um there's always like the the uh push to make like software better, more secure, and so on. But there's also this like humbling realization that like you only need so many critical vulns to come out a year that are enough to impact most companies, right? Like a lot of times you see all these like rankings, you know, especially towards the end of the year, it'll be like, you know, have vulnerabilities become more or less and so on. But, you know, I've often thought it's like, you know, what, what do you really need? You know, like one or two good vulns a month uh, as kind of the uh, the the beachhead of sorts of, of kind of getting into places if your fishing's not working for you. Um, and so that that's always one of those, uh, those scary things of like, there's always going to be this kind of constant trickle, like no matter how, how well uh, uh, we do at things, no matter how much we improve kind of software security. And that's not a, not the reason you shouldn't, right? You should always make things like as hard a target as you can. Um, but it is just that continued like realization and acceptance that like there's always going to be a phone, there's always going to be a way, there's always going to be that misclick. And so, you know, everything comes back to, again, just assuming breach and, or how do you make sure to have things that are uh, that much more resilient? You know, when you when you think in terms of off and stuff like that. So, I don't know if that's like like a a, a scary thing. Maybe that's like a an old guy in security too long scary, scary thing. You know, than the <laughs> than the right now immediate. What about for you, James? Well, maybe
1: the scary thing is how long you've been having to say the same thing, and that, that's still an issue, <laughs> isn't it? You know, I, I was talking at a, a, well, the, a conference last week, and one of the things we're talking with the audience about was we're talking about all these issues around you know this has default credentials or this you know, is an easily guessed password and then you can get in and you have overprivileged access. And then we look back to like the Morris worm of 1988 and we go, yeah, that's exactly the same thing. You know, with, with these these core concepts in security, these sort of timeless concepts that you talk about, Mark, that are often, yeah. it feels like we're not learning the lesson, we're just calling it IoT devices now and complaining that they're unpatched and exposed <laughs> and have default credentials <laughs> rather than, you know, your, your web server in the 1980s that you're trying to get going and all that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, no, it's totally true, man. It's it's I, we still have so much so much of a focus on um uh teaching, you know, tools and I, I think even to a to a to a to uh maybe some worse extent, right, where, where so many folks, they're, you know, they know the different products that they know as like, you know, their kind of security defenses, but getting into the kind of like the physics, you know, being able to think deep in term of in terms of like attack surface and like, just to your point, like those kind of timeless things. I mean, it always feels like a, a quest to try to educate more on that. I, I always often joke, uh, you know, my my wife now of, of many many years, who will happily explain the tax surface to to anybody, and um, you know it's because she's heard me uh, talk about it so much, but it feels like you you can't kind of explain that enough, and and I think more importantly, there's always like that new, you know, new um, crop of uh, people kind of coming in the infosec right, and that's like, are, are they getting those uh, uh, concepts as as a thing that they're first learning, or is it just more like you know here's the tools, you know, here's how to navigate them. Uh, kind of missing those uh, those physics lessons, so yeah. I think uh, until we get better at that kind of th- those fundamentals and teaching the fundamentals in a more consistent way out there, then we, we shall be doing many more. Name your your latest scary thing.
1: That's actually <laughs> my scary thing. I think at the moment uh, to actually answer the question you asked me a few minutes ago which uh, is actually the like the next generation and the learning. So I'm I'm quite into like playing around with electronics and home automation and hardware hacking things. And the more and more I look online and you find like the instructables tutorials to how to set your Raspberry Pi up as like a mm-hmm. home server and all this kind of thing. And then you see people go, oh, and you just do this. And there's no mention of like patching, updating, securing. And then you open these ports up and then you can connect to it anywhere in the world. And there's there's so many of these tutorials and advice that people just like follow through the scripts, not understanding the consequences of what they're doing and, uh, and opening up access and Setting up something that might just sit in a, a cupboard for, you know, five ten years to come, doing some turning your light on and off remotely, that introduces, you know, is that where you put yours level. in the cupboard? Exactly, yeah, in the cupboard, yeah, Airing in cupboard. <laughs> uh, but no, this is this is the problem, right? You know, there's a lot of these tutorials and people are getting upskilled on, you know, how to write, you know, Python script and do these things and connect things up and and stick all the Lego together, but there's no actual kind of underlying security there's no one looking at that saying flagging this is a high-risk tutorial because it's going to tell you to do something stupid or put credentials in a script on the internet that anyone can access so i think that's kind of the thing that's scaring me
0: yeah for sure man and it's, it's interesting because um you know kind of to your point i actually saw and i wish i could remember who it was to to give him a shout out but i saw an interesting thread on uh, twitter the other day and it was kind of Making the joke of, um, you know, for for some high level web development, you know, uh, they were they were being sarcastic of like, you know, shame on 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 those folks that they, you know, don't know everything all the way down to the TCP IP stack and so forth or whatever. And um, they were making the argument that like, you know, like I think in most cases, right, where it's like uh, the level of abstraction is also like extremely helpful for like progress and building and going. Mm. And so you can't expect everybody to to know kind of like the full stack of things. And I don't know who honestly does know the full stack of anything at, at this point. And there's that kind of interesting uh, trajectory of security, right? Where it's like when, when things started out, you could kind of, you could kind of be a master of a lot of different domain areas. And I think in a way like, um, like uh, most sciences, right? Where it's like, everything's gotten like very like specialized. And uh, so you have to kind of pick mm. your specialty, but it seems like if we were to kind of overlay it, um, there's a, uh, uh, and who knows? Maybe this tracks with with science in general. But now I'm now I'm getting way outside my depth. But uh, it seems seems like there's a lot <laughs> less people kind of focused on that, like f- physics layer, if you will, right? Um, and uh, and again, that's maybe that tracks uh, with with other fields, right? But uh, feels like we need more of that um, to to be able to make more of the uh, the fundamental changes and, and fundamental kind of understanding out there. But but yeah, I, I see and feel that, and I'm
2: like. What what scares me is that when people do have that physics knowledge, as you will, like those kind of foundation principles of security, that they kind of put themselves on a pedestal and bring in that like toxicity of like, I can't believe you didn't know this. It's like, whoa, no, hold on. Like, you know, I've not had to know that to this point. Just help me. Um, and that that was one thing that kind of scares me in the industry, I guess, is just some of those kind of older mindsets yep. of like, well, I'm going to I'm gonna retain this, keep it to myself and make you feel bad or be a bit kind of toxic around the fact that you didn't know that. And actually, like that's something I think we should all work to sort of stamp out yeah, in the sure. industry and it's, it's on everyone to not be like that. Um, but yeah, no, I, t- I totally hear what you're saying. Like those principles are often missed or not explained because we're teaching into such a specialist technology area of, well, this is how you achieve your outcome. Like, let's talk about that and we kind of forget about the rest james like the, the iot principle of well it's been built and it works so let's tick the box and move forward um yeah scary times absolutely
1: and uh, i think a good point to pick up on mark mentioned earlier you know the um mfa issues and the need for fido2 so one of the mm. things that keeps cropping up in some of the breach stories we're seeing in 2022 and you know obviously causing people some concerns are these attack techniques that are, that are happening where you know, be it some teenager in a bedroom or some nation state where we're seeing credentials compromised. We're then seeing some form of MFA fatigue, whether it's just dumb, just annoy the user until they press something or combined with a level of social engineering, pretending to be the help desk, you know, WhatsApp messages, all this kind of thing. And then they get in and then suddenly, you know, all hell breaks. So it's in the environment because this this identity, sometimes a contractor, third party, even not directly a member of the organization has access to things. They've got this identity, they've managed to get past the gate of MFA, and then we see all these these challenges break out. So maybe Mark, you could talk us through why these things happen and, and what some of the problems are there.
0: Oh man, where to where to begin on that one? I literally don't know where to begin on. That, okay, on that Carl, one.
1: would you like to talk I us mean, through some of these challenges? Yeah, Carl, I, I, kick I'll, us off.
2: Yeah, right. So for me, I think. I would be lying if I said I never got annoyed by MFA prompts, and that that's the big thing for me is like how how do you present this to a human in a way that's meaningful? And I think to your point, James, where you're seeing this like run of breaches that happen. We had MFA, and it shouldn't have happened. It's like yeah, if you're also like prompting somebody 600 times a day, and it's the 601st, that is the rogue one pretty sure they're not reading that by that point guys like you know single sign-on is great and it's also really bad for an adversary too because it means they get single sign-on to pretty much everything but for me i think it you have to take that human-centric approach and be like well what what's the design that's going to work here and how do we make sure that it is a meaningful prompt and it's not something that's just glazed over um i mean we see a lot When, when things are difficult and people are concerned they engineer a solution out of it right like you know this kind of home monitoring stuff where they've now got mouse wigglers that you just buy on Amazon and it's a little disc that moves around. You stand your mouse on. Like everyone's got their own ingenuity on how to kind of make the noise yeah. go away. Um, and it, yeah, I would be, I would be thinking about what what's a pragmatic approach to prompting a user or having them reauthenticate. I love some of the technologies where it's like based on keyboard behavior and how you're actually typing is the continuous authentication or how you're holding your device in your hand. You kind of build up a pattern with, well, we know Carl uses his device in his right hand and he tends to hold it at eye height because he's getting older and getting blind. Um, And then those kind of, I guess, biometric sensors and the way someone is using it uh, builds a much wider profile of all of a sudden you're different, yet it's transparent to the user. So I I think what we'll see as a trend, and this is like a, a stake in the ground prediction, is we go more from... MFA wants but continuous authentication, and we kind of gravitate towards that to stop these types of things happening?
0: Oh, no, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm probably boring here in a sense of, you know, I, I go back to to FIDO2 of, uh, you know, the the, 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 the <laughs> challenge is like, it's still, it's, there's still a lot of hoops you got to jump through rolling out FIDO2, right? But like, um, really getting focused on it. I, I mean, to me, it's it's hard to, to think that that's not like, you know, the one of the kind of top 10, Projects that, uh, or even less than that, depending on depending on where you're at with security, of like something you should be doing, right? And like especially these days where you know you there's a there's a greater chance, you know, especially if you're um, you know have have more modern devices, right? Where you have you know Windows Hello that can do FIDO mm-hmm. two in a variety of devices, laptops and so on. You have you know um, uh, Touch ID built into uh, Macs for doing FIDO two, and then of course you can always have your you know UB keys and related, and um, you know. Th- there's, uh, I think, there's something really cool there where n- not only are you getting, you know, better, you know, phishing resistant security, but uh, the experience can just be better, right? Like, like just tap, tapping yeah. your device that's sitting right in front of you and uh, being good to go and never getting prompted uh, because there there are no prompts is <laughs> nice, and um, also it kind of gives <laughs> you mechanisms where. I think sometimes with some of the kind of two FA settings and kind of what you were saying, Carl, which I think is spot on, of like the the kind of ongoing continuous authentication. And there's some cool research coming out of uh, Microsoft, and we'll see what kind of uh, standards happen there. But the uh, that the kind of continuous authentication, um, you know, it reminds me of some of the two FA stuff of. Uh, of how we used to have a lot of crazy notions related to passwords of like, you know, your passwords need to be, mm. you know, more complex than you're ever going to remember. Uh, you need to be changing them like every <laughs> month or, crazy. you know what I mean? Like all these like crazy standards that I think a lot of those uh, have shifted. And so kind of, kind of similar when you think of like Fido 2 and stuff, it's like, you know, how often do you need to re-auth, you know, that person that's actually, you know, on their same laptop versus a new device, obviously you'd want to, doing uh, doing things differently. And so I think there's like different standards where you, you can make like that. I don't want to hand wave the hand wave the complexity of of the projects, right? Because anybody who's had to do this stuff knows there's a lot, yeah. but you can make this amazing like, you know, roll up in in the morning, you know, showing up to work, you know, do your touch ID. Uh, you know, once or twice, depending on your, your systems, maybe you have some apps that you've set to kind of a higher security level where you're uh, having the re-auth to them, you know, you can kind of get more granular there, but generally it creates this, you know, tap your touch ID, tap, tap your Yubi key. you know, get your, get your workday in and, um, you know, it's seamless and, and more secure uh, altogether, all right? So it's, it's always hard to find those things in, uh, in security where you can create like a, uh, a better user experience while at the same time like increasing security right and um uh, it reminds me of my uh my time at a a company i won't name but you can maybe guess but there was uh um it was an interesting uh thing i had learned of uh when a company like uh well, actually wearing a hat today uh with a company like tesla right where it's not just about like making an electric car but how do you just make a better car right and like the uh uh mm. the ability is there based on just the differences of like the simplicity if you will um of an electric car and the maintenance and, and so on and so forth right and so fido2 reminds me of one of those things where there's still all sorts of problems with it again so i don't get flamed online but the potential is there right if the, if the maturity in the industry and so you know we even look for our own company right of you know it's something as cto where i'm making sure like what are all the interactions that our own products have with auth are we making it as seamless and easy to use fido2 and other standards as possible um, and uh, those are really important things because not only just you know customer adoption but we like we want more people to do these things right so we need to do our part mm-hmm. as as other companies in technology space need to do right to to make those technologies work and be easier to use. So.
1: And for the benefit of the audience, if they're not familiar with FIDO2 and these more sort of unfishable MFA mechanisms, can you just briefly describe why it's different from these push notifications that people are seeing and, and having challenges with?
0: Yeah, I mean, Carl was mentioning of like, you know, there's a few things when, when you think of push. I mean, obviously... People have a lot of different d- debates on MFA in general, um, but uh, I think uh, some MFA is is better than none. some people argue otherwise because uh, because technically when you think from a a phishing perspective right um, you you very much can uh, trick somebody into uh, offing you know tapping their phone and uh, they're they're none the wiser if you will uh, happens more frequently it's always been like a, a potential but it's definitely happening a lot more frequently these days. Um, and what's cool with uh, with FIDO2 is there's essentially, think of it as, as linkage of like, you're never going to submit uh, your credential, if you will, to a website that is not the actual legitimate one that is expected, right? So, you're never going to send it to, um, um, you know, Microsoft with an extra I in the domain name or, or whatever it might be, right? Mm. And so, it's, uh, it's a much more... Uh, Tightly coupled, if you will, uh, with the the actual authentication and what you're actually uh, logging into. And so, the thing that um, the thing that kind of remains a challenge, though, is that there's uh, uh, s- certain applications, right, where they're they're embedding and displaying like the SSO prompt. Take something like, uh, uh, I think even most recent versions of Microsoft Teams, but maybe they've fixed it. Uh, but they were using kind of a, an older embedded browser, wasn't working right. So you're like, you're essentially not able to do the FIDO2 device uh, authentication, and you're having to make like an exception uh, uh, for that. Uh, I think something got fixed there. So I, again, I, c- I could be wrong, but. There's different examples like that, you know, or it could be some uh, thick client, you know, desktop application that also is uh, doing wonky things with how it's doing, like you know that that SSO uh, type of prompt, uh, which is commonly what you're going to have. You know, your FIDO two set up with like a an Okta, Microsoft, you know, ping so forth.
2: As I say, I, I always think of like FIDO versus pushes. Well, FIDO two. I'm on the actual device I'm using. Yeah. Push. It's the second device. And that, that like for me, if if I was a like a non geek almost, it's like that. I find that the easiest way to explain it is you're having to use another device out of band to authenticate, not the actual device you're working from with your your key in or like you say touch ID, Windows Hello. So you kind of there's an expectation on the user to have something in their hand, and that is authenticating you to something completely in a separate location. And when you think of it like that, that's my like, is that the right thing to do? Like, hey, you could be a million miles away from each other and you're still pressing the yes button. And I think that's where it kind of, you get into these fishing kits that really start to trick people with that, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, that's kind of my view on it too. It's like I, I like Absolutely. FIDO too. Yeah. There's MFA <laughs> yeah, you know, sure.
1: fishing kits that we've seen, the rising prevalence of like Evil Proxy, Evil Engine X2, where they're geared up and, you know, for a couple of well, 400-ish dollars a month, you know, you can spin up infrastructure that mimics the login page of a lot of common services that might use MFA and proxy that through. So then the attacker is benefiting and logging those systems and you're just being redirected off while they sifting out information and, and grabbing things out of those accounts. So this is no longer the kind of sophisticated mm. attacks. This is off-the-shelf software that you're able to do and start to send out. And then those phishing emails, like you were talking about, Carl, where you end up on a very realistic-looking landing page. You're seeing the MFA challenges. You're doing all these things. And it's just being siphoned off, so so that's really important to be aware of. Uh, I think in this landscape,
0: I, I was just going to add, like w- w- one of the things I've seen that's pretty interesting with some of the like very large enterprise companies, where there's a lot of in-house applications, and so it's it's one of the constant challenges for like infosec teams where they're trying to make sure that all the internal applications that are getting developed are you know properly using the company SSOs, so on and so forth, because it tends to be you know internal app. Some department off somewhere, mm. they're building you know something custom and just to get things done, uh, they end up using uh, local accounts and so now it's these other accounts to this potentially critical system that you you know both don't know about as an infosec team, uh, but you also um, um, you know aren't properly having things like SSO. So if you know an employee lets go, uh, gets let go uh, or leaves, uh, that you're properly disabling you know their account kind of across the board, and so it's always one of those kind of um, you know, visibility gaps that like ends up happening, right? Of like, where do I have those apps that are not kind of properly using our standards? And one of the things I've seen with um, some of the enterprises that I think tend to do it a little bit better is, you know, you always have to think about like security engineering, right? Like in the same way that we think about, Mm. um, you know, I'd say like an old school way of thinking of like, well, I'm just going to make sure my my, uh, employees never click on a bad phishing link. And it's like, that's like a, a... an extremely hard task, and it's a burden that, like, frankly, you don't need to put on your users. It's just there's technical solutions for it. And same thing when we think of like internal uh, apps and like properly using SSO. One of the things I always like to ask security teams that are kind of running around doing this whack-a-mole of yelling at folks, "Why aren't you using it?" It's like, well, what's like the SDK that you've like given them? What's like the base templates, right? What's that security engineering where you're like, you know, here is our default, you know. Net Core or Python uh, template to actually go set mm-hmm. up, you know, your new app, and um, again, stuff that's easier said than done, depending on resources and everything else. But it, it, it's uh, kind of a, a different, maybe more in the weeds at some level, uh, example of like, are you doing the sort of security engineering that is like making you more resilient versus, you know, just kind of hoping and, and playing whack a mole as you find things. So.
1: Yeah, and on that kind of security engineering and architecture piece, one of the things that we're seeing consistently in these big breach stories is, you know, we've started off with an identity, we've managed to get past the MFA challenge, and then it's usually it's into a VPN, and then very bad things happen quickly. We're seeing rapid escalation of privileges, touching lots of systems, and sometimes these are, you know, contractors or third parties, and in one case we saw, you know, a prominent vendor who was popped because a, a someone had their credentials stored within their personal Google account you know, the Chrome password store for logging into web interfaces. So the attacker compromised a personal Gmail account, got some credentials, tricked the user into doing the MFA push notification thing, and then we see a rapid escalation. And to me, that's kind of, there's there's a flaw there in the architecture of how has this person got such permissive access and so many permissions that they could start and, you know, jump off and cause all that damage. So I don't know, Carl, have you got any thoughts around, you know, Mm. the, the way people architect their environments there?
2: Corporate buzzword at the moment, zero trust, right? Like, I I genuinely believe you have to have that frame of mind that at some point, somebody using this application or service is going to be breached, and then kind of work back from there. And it's like, right, so what do we need to do? Well, we need to make sure, first of all, we strongly authenticate them. We need to then think about, actually, how are we going to limit that traffic to just be to that application or service for that time period? how are we going to understand if that looks bad and kind of build in that resilience from the start? Cause a lot of people are like, how do we get this working? And it's like, working's great. How are you going to tell somebody that it's being used maliciously or for a purpose that it's not being built, uh, been built to serve. Right. And I think that's important to think about from the ground up because there's one thing we all know, every security kind of blue team are quite overwhelmed with information coming at them. So build something meaningful that's going to say we're having a problem right now please come and take a look um i, I think that that would be where i would start as like those kind of three principles like you know as an attacker if i have access and i have creds then well uh, an identity i'm i'm pretty much most of the way there and as a defender if you can at least tell me something bad's happening it gives me a fighting chance to stop it um
0: that, that'd be where i'd go
1: Mark?
0: yeah and I'd, I'd maybe add that um the you know i've probably said this even on the podcast before you know nor- normally if i was uh uh recording at home i have the old uh dod uh rainbow books on my bookshelf right and uh when did mm. those come out like late 80s early 90s Kind of ish timeframe. It's around the time you know, I was some, born, something like that, yeah, some around, and um, <laughs> yeah, something like that. And uh, <laughs> but you know what's what's interesting. And this is obviously going way back, but you know it talks about concepts like like least privilege and stuff, and th- there's all these variations. And obviously, um, you know, there's the the modern uh, takes on you know zero trust, but everything kind of gets back to the to the heart of you know making sure people only have access to you know exactly what they need to, right? So. Uh, there's so many different examples of it, right There's so many companies that still have you know um, broad uh, you know wide open VPN access like you're, I think you were mentioning like um, you know I, I might only need the VPN to get access to you know a single system as a contractor um, but when I VPN in, yeah I might only have you know the ability to authenticate to that one system but I can still see the entirety of the network. I can still see everything kind of adjacent to that system. And so there's obviously uh, Mm -hmm. a a lot that companies are doing on how do you actually do uh, you know that right sort of access that is giving you just access to what you actually need, right? And I mean that that's just one area. Um, There's obviously so many others as far as um, you know the not only how you kind of uh, making sure people have only access what they have uh, or what they need to, uh, but also how you're just kind of limiting attack surface in general, right? Like um, the maybe as a side tangent, you know, one of the things I always look at going into, you know, if I was going to a new company to help them with, uh, security is sometimes everybody's kind of jumping to the point of like, you know, especially for a company that's been around a while, um, jumping to the point of like, well, how do I secure what's here? And one of the first things I always like to do is like, what, what can we prune that we like don't need? Right. Cause it could be that like, um, you know, you have some, some, uh, uh, legacy, you know, sprawling Active Directory environment that like made sense at the point in time, uh, but moving to like Azure AD and like other modern systems is like you know the better route, right? Are you still are running on-prem uh, Exchange, right? Which you should burn down yesterday, um, <laughs> for better or worse. And uh, so sometimes it's just like, how are you removing those things in the first place? Which I realize is a little off-topic from uh, from zero trust, but. I think I think those two things are always intertwined in my brain of like, what are you doing to reduce your attack surface, uh, you know, uh, constantly, uh, and mm-hmm. what are you doing to uh, better tailor, you know, people only having access to what they what they should, right? And there's uh, there's so many different facets to both of those, though. Uh, what about what about you, James? Yeah, I think it's very much down to
1: the thing that Carl said of getting it working is easy, well, to an extent, can be easy. And the problem a lot of the time I always find is that security debt is silent debt. You know, if you give everyone in your org local admin rights, you Mm. don't patch the systems, you give them access to everything, you're not going to get many help desk tickets for I can't access this system, I can't do this thing, I can't install this thing, I need to for my job. But that attack surface is growing and growing and growing. So unless you have an idea of what the attack surface is, because when you get hit, then you get hit hard. And the thing I've seen in you know a lot of these big breach stories is we almost skip over this this part of the story where it says, you know, users' credentials were fished They tricked they this MFA trick and they managed to manipulate the user into pressing the button. Well, of course they did. They're, they're not doing anything clever. They're doing what teenagers do. And a lot of these DACA's, you know, lapsus group and things, we see teenagers in the frame for it because they just nag you until they get the thing you want. So that gets you past the MFA challenge. But then we pretend like it's magic because it says the attacker was then able to elevate privileges and steal all these other credentials. Well, again, there's there's laws of physics that apply here. If any user in an org could dump domain admin credentials, then we'd be in a very bad place. This is because a user has been provisioned with privileges. A system has people logging into it. There's credentials they can dump there. There's probably a load of signals that you can look for from repeated MFA challenges, new MFA devices being added unusual IP addresses, you know, logging into the VPN, unusual patterns of access between different systems. There's so many things out there we could start to look for, but we sort of often in these write-ups, it's it's almost glossed over like, well, it's game over. The attacker had got some username and password. And then of course they were able to compromise the entire network. And that's the piece that's missing for me of people thinking about those, forget about the latest AI and ML detection piece that you're, you're thinking of, those fundamentals of do i control the devices do i control the software do i control the identities do i control the access and then that kind of detection on the top of all that and building it so you don't undermine your investment cuz you know you see again in those same news stories that the attacker ran a powershell script that disabled windows defender and local event logs well yeah that's cuz if again they've been <laughs> able to use a privileged identity there on the windows endpoint potentially to do that your standard user can't do that so you know, it's a drum I've been banging for far too many years now. But I I think that's the piece that people are often missing. These aren't magic. are like you said, there's physics involved in them. And it can go back to the, you know, to Carl's birth and the DOD rainbow books of those key concepts that are out there around only giving people access to what they need to do their to do their job and then, you know, monitoring for when they're trying to cross boundaries outside of that. Simple things like that can actually go a this long, long way to making you more secure.
0: Yeah. And it, there's actually something interesting in what you just said you just very rapidly as you were you're explaining there was a part you said of the progression mm. right of of like from kind of like endpoint into identity yeah. and like um it, it's worth uh it's worth like dwelling or highlighting for a second of like you know if you if you think of like the the overall progression of the the security space you know there was the you have all these systems being interconnected, and then there's the you know the invention of the the firewall of like, well, let's let's put the uh, the castle moat right mm-hmm. uh, around everything and keep people uh, keep people from the out you know from the outside from getting in in a general sense. And then everybody realized, you know, there, there really is no kind of perimeter. And so everything became about how do I de- defend my my endpoints, my end systems themselves. Both of these things are still, you know, uh, true and still things people uh, need to be practicing. But, you know, we very much have arrived at this kind of, you know, third, uh, third distinct area, I, I would say. And, and there's obviously smaller kind of subsets along the way where uh, it's not just about, you know, the, uh, my endpoints and my systems and how am I protecting them but it's, it's really about like the identities in general right oh. and especially these days where like you know what it means to compromise you know your account James could be spread across you know multiple mm. different devices some company owns some not uh, some laptops some mobile some you know who knows um, and uh, not to mention the uh, proliferation of um, you know machine accounts where you have uh, how much of your business that's being driven not anything to do with the, any uh, human identity, but just machine identity in, in terms of uh, um, you know, interconnectivity of systems. And so it's an interesting progression and, and um, you, know, you, you were kind of touching on it where, you know, one of the first things I think in any security domain that people look for is, is visibility, right? Like you're just trying to understand like mm-hmm. um, what is the visibility into the problem space. And so when we think in terms of like identity and, and a lot of what we've been you know, talking about right now, Um, visibility is that like first part where it's, it's, uh, in order to try to understand, you know, where should I be applying the principle of least privilege? Where should I be improving certain aspects of, of what I might do from a zero trust perspective? You have to have the kind of visibility and even understanding and kind of knowing what you don't know about your environment. Um, and, and obviously that's a, an interesting proposition when you think of your environment in terms of, um, uh, your environment's no longer just that you know perfect corporate network, right? It's uh, it's expansive. It's uh, remote workers, de- uh, devices, third parties, SaaS, cloud. You know, it's sprawling, right? Uh, the the estate of what most companies are having to deal with these days. And so, um, there's just something I I think you I think you mentioned the uh, uh, the one to to hone in for folks because I think it's a, a enormously important. It's a it's a different mindset of kind of how you think about securing your environment. So.
2: That, that sprawl was something that I found quite interesting over the last few months. Is looking into things like subdomain takeovers, where you have like an organization, you know, they they build something, it references like a, a URL, like something.azurewebsites.net, whatever that might be. You run, it works, you tear it down, that domain still exists. And then it's where you get a malicious threat actor then taking over that subdomain. And you, you tend to see this around like, there's a CNAME from, you know, something carl.com to this random Azure AWS service and not keeping track of those those that are t- torn up or stood up and torn down, I should say, um, has led to quite a few organizations and you can kind of read about them on you know, your HackerOne blogs and stuff like that where they found organizations have these stale DNS entries out there that threat actors can take over. That helps with your phishing because it it looks legitimate at that point, right? You know, I went to a sign and I know that's a Carl.com or you know you get the cookies automatically like replay on that domain, your password managers automatically inject credentials for that domain um, or you then get the reputational issues. and I think it was pretty pretty scary when I started reading about how I guess trivial this is because you can enumerate DNS, you can find those entries and and do that verification for yourself. Really cool tool at Blackout Arsenal that, that came out, DNS Reaper by Punk Security. has kind of all the signatures there to try and verify this. So you as a security professional can kind of look in and see if you're at risk. Um, but yeah, it just speaks to that. We're trying so much to do the next new and get things working and get things moving at the velocity of the business. And that often when that need changes and you tear these things down, that sprawl stays like how many machine accounts are still kicking around that aren't used? How many domains aren't used anymore that still exist in the organization? So, it, yes, it, it terrifies me greatly, but also it's nice that people are recognizing these issues and fixing them proactively as a community. I think that's pretty cool. Yeah,
1: that's great. And if we're doing some tool shout-outs as well, I've been looking at um, Azure Goat and AWS Goat. So, uh, I'm assuming Goat is in greatest of all time. So Ooh, it's it's that? very similar to... Um, damn vulnerable web (laughs) app and these kind of tools so if you've ever come across them they're great you know training opportunities to spin up a a vulnerable web server and then just learn a bit about security and that's that education piece that we were talking about that was lacking earlier and these are systems where you can spin up vulnerable Mm. aws infrastructure uh, azure infrastructure just to explore be able to explore it and understand the threats that are out there and then start to realize where some of these might be without necessarily having to go and start Tearing into your production environment, you know you can run exercises with your own, uh, you know, SRE teams, uh, engineering teams to start to look at, you know, mm. okay, if we configure these cloud environments in this way, what are our risks? Where do you know where do these um, these risks lie, and how can we make sure we don't fall into these traps? Because as you say, everything gets you know pushed out, and still the same problems. It's just now in the cloud, and people go, oh, it's an AWS. I don't necessarily understand it. Um, so, yeah, you know, I think these are really good learning opportunities to go out there and get hands-on and see what good practice looks like, what bad practice looks like, and be able to differentiate between the two.
2: Mm. That's pretty cool, actually. And, yeah, quite like the idea of uh, my AWS goat having a bit of a play
0: and learning for myself. That, that'd that be yeah. quite fun.
1: Uh, Mark, any, any tools, any cool things that you've seen
0: recently? Uh, I don't know if I have a specific tool. Um, I would shout out to... Um somebody I follow on uh, Twitter that I think is always highlighting a lot of good tools and resources out there. I apologize. I've never heard his last name out loud, so I'm going to butcher it and then I'll spell it. But um, (laughs) on uh, Twitter, uh, Clint uh, Gibler, maybe? Uh, G-I-B-L-E-R. And I believe he tweets, uh, it's literally just at uh, Clint, C L I N T G I B L E R. Uh, I think he's somebody that's fantastic to to cover that does a a really great job of uh uh encapsulating a lot of the you know interesting tools that have been coming out, you know, uh papers and tech docs and things that are like worth reading and so forth. So I would definitely uh, uh check him out as uh somebody to follow that's kind of I think always has a good stream of uh things like that to be to be learning about. Excellent. Uh, and now I've lost my co-host to uh looking them up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're, we're we're all googling now like
2: oh this this clint guy yeah, that sounds cool yeah <laughs> we'll spend an hour on that
0: now. <laughs> so as we
1: sort of uh r- start to wrap up the uh halloween special so we turn towards the light a bit and say w- what good things have you seen in security of late what things have impressed you
2: yeah i mean i'm gonna go straight in there microsoft yep. macros thank you well done it's been a while but we got there um Really happy, actually. Like I know that's a bit facetious, I guess, but really, really happy that we're recognizing that, actually, whilst macros have a place in an organization, not enabling them immediately by default to do everything in the world is a really good idea. Uh, and that being built in with that kind of secure-by-design principle, really, really happy. Um, yeah, I think it's it's made a positive impact and change because we're having to see threat actors respond in different ways. So that, I think that's when you know you're yeah, doing a it's, good it's job. It's
1: interesting that the <laughs> threat actor's changing rapidly, starting to use like link files and ISO files to try and bury payloads in different ways yeah. to the malicious documents.
0: It, it didn't didn't Microsoft, like wasn't a few months ago, they, they initially said, hey, we're disabling macros. And then they were like, oh, maybe not. And then now they finally are saying, yes, yes, we actually are. Was there some like a, like a back and forth? or Yeah, they, they, they were going my, uh... to do it,
1: and then they held back on it, and, and it wasn't by default. But we, we, the general trend is towards, if you pulled it down off the internet and it hasn't been created in your organization, why on earth are you going to let the macros run by default? We'll why are you going to let the yeah. user say, yeah, this is probably okay? Because most of the phishing emails out there literally are visually going to a user, hey, this is a secure doc. You should click enable macros to make it even more secure, and the user. This is the thing that your your life
0: has been missing. Click
2: here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's definitely okay. (laughs) Click there, please. Exactly. (laughs) But it's
1: playing on that user's psychology of I think I've been told I should do security things. This says this is a security thing. Uh, So it's good to see Microsoft finally going. You know what? Yeah, we're going to tackle this. We're going to start doing things around credential theft and uh, Windows Defender Credential Guard. You know to separate out where the credentials are stored and stop them being dumped even by someone with administrative privileges on the endpoint some really good steps coming with windows Mm. 11 caveat being it's going to be a long tail and there's still going to be a lot of these things kicking around in systems and environments and enterprises because some people are still running xp so you know it's going to be a a long slow drawn out death for these things but uh, direction of travel seems really good
2: and a compelling reason to yeah. move, right? Like I I think when you're thinking why why would I change between off um office uh, operating system versions? It's it's like, hey, actually this is building in far more security from the start. That this is going to be meaningful to us. Let, let's push that. Um yeah, really cool.
1: Anything you want to call out, Mark? On
0: thing, things things uh, improving. Positive. Yeah, I think uh yeah, no, I think I think there's a ton. Um the uh I mean, I think one of the things that's uh, that's always worth highlighting is like the the Infosec community at large is like a thriving, amazing one. I mean, I think you you, you always have to be kind of maybe disciplined at some level of uh, you know there's a level of exploring, and there's there's so much good content. There's so many things that you can learn um, that at some point, you know, I think it's worthwhile picking like an area to kind of go deep in um, because you can stay you can easily stay surface level for for a very long time, and there's there's nothing necessarily like wrong with that. Right. It's just, um, I think it's, it's easy to kind of stay above the surface for a very long time because there's so much good content. There's every week, there's more than you could ever Mm. read and learn and tools that you could ever play with and so forth. So, you know, I think finding that, that focus area, um, you obviously have to do, you know, especially if you're, you know, earlier in your career, you you always got to do that level of exploration to kind of see what piques your interest. Cause I think ultimately, you know, Trying to settle on some aspect of uh, of infosec that is, you know, what you're going to be most passionate about. But, I mean, I think the uh, the the thing I'm always extremely positive on is the uh, just the community around information security and like the amount of uh, awesome tooling that's out there. The transfer of knowledge and everything else is, is something to be truly positive about. Um, and, I, and I think also for some of the 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 You know we were talking earlier about some of the kind of core you know physics or repeating problems of like the last 20 years like i think there's uh you know certain areas where we're just you know finally arriving at like you know better fundamentals like better technology um that allows to kind of solve some of these problems in better ways right so uh Mm -hmm. when we think in terms of things like um uh fido2 you know that we've mentioned a few times uh when we think in terms of like when you want to do the sort of you know big data processing, where there might have been ideas years ago, and it was like you know good luck trying to do that you know on prem or not being part of some you know very large company, you know like what's enabled of what you can kind of do with a uh, even a, a free tier AWS account as far as like learning and playing around with these things is like pretty amazing. So I think there's a level of um, while there have been you know variety of kind of those those repeating concepts and messages, there is a a point of uh, acceptance around like you know the technology existing and also like a will to do some more of these things, um, and so yeah, I think there's without a doubt still plenty of things to be solved for, but uh, um, we're we're in a much better place, and I think sometimes it's hard to see that if you haven't been kind of in it long enough to have like that that perspective, right? It doesn't mean the problems are all solved and there's plenty of new ones that are being created. Uh, and we'll see plenty of interesting things in the future around uh, machine learning issues and so on and so forth, but um, definitely uh, without a doubt progress, right? And I think everybody always wants the uh, that like perfect kind of finish line, the progress, and there, there isn't that for security, right? It's just moving forward and hopefully making things better and leaving them better than you found them, right? So what about for you, James?
1: I think there's a lot of positive energy and movement around security at the moment. You know, the the thing that I mentioned around a Windows operating system, we are, it's getting more secure by default. We've seen the macros thing. We've seen a lot of the core operating system things being abstracted into hypervisors and degree of separation there. And if you actually look at the like the vulnerability landscape, we're seeing far fewer of those big bang, you need this one exploit to, you know, run code in the kernel. It's actually now I need this series of 10 different little exploits to break out of the Chrome sandbox to then run code on a standard user to then try and, you know, so there's, there's more staging to it. And actually the more steps you can put in an attack chain, the noisier the attacker has to be and the more likely you are to detect them. So I think that general direction is, is a real positive for me, the amount of interest and funding and opportunities in the industry. And the kind of, I think we're seeing a bit more of a rise of the infosec storyteller, which is something I always think has been missing for a long time of, being able to communicate issues into the business and the business listening. You're not just the gatekeeper in the basement anymore with the blinking lights and the servers. You are, you know, someone who's part of the business decision-making process and risk and understanding the cyber landscape is part of the standard business process now, which I think is a really positive step in in the right direction there. Plenty of work to be done, plenty of improvements, constantly shifting landscape. But if we can get those fundamentals right and get people bought in and understanding the problems, then I think, you know, we're in a good place to move forward.
2: I feel like you stole my one there, James. Like the th- one of the things I'm like super pumped about is like, to your point, it's the first time or, or some of the first moments in my career where security is a conversation that happens not just in an organization, like, it's in the news. Like it, it's a mainstream conversation for the general populace. It's like that's really exciting because it means people care um, and people will gravitate towards this, and it, it will build out like a. The industry even further right and attract way more people in that perhaps never knew about this industry or didn't know that actually what they do on a daily basis is security um so I, that's what excites me and that's something i think we're getting right is that we're not we're not shying away from the conversation it's in fact kind of broadening out into mainstream media and i kind of talk about it like there's never been a better time to talk to your board about cyber security risk Like, it's the point at which they've had so much education through mainstream media that they probably understand a lot of what you're talking about, um, which is really helpful. So, yeah, that's my exciting (laughs) bit. Okay,
1: well, as it's a Halloween special, we've got to end on uh, a scary note. So I'm going to ask you, what are you still scared of? This could be spiders or something in your personal life, or it could be something in, in cyber. It's up to you recording, recording podcast
0: okay it's terrifying <laughs> i, <laughs> I mean, love it though <laughs> you don't show it carl i'll say that buddy
2: <laughs> oh man i uh, wow yeah what am i scared of um I, I always think i'm scared of of not knowing in a way so it's that what's that thing that i'm going to get blindsided with and i'm not sure about or i've never heard that before but that's also like It scares me because it makes me feel vulnerable, but actually it's really cool because it can go and learn something. So it's that like taking that negative and flipping it around is like a really cool thing in my head. Um, But yeah, it still terrifies me like how little I know, I think is probably the best way to to sum it up. Okay,
1: Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that. Actually, I think to Mark's point and your point earlier around like the amount of volume and, you know, go deep on certain areas because you could drown in infosec Twitter. You could combine that with imposter syndrome and mm. all the things going on in the news. And, you know, you, your full-time job could just be looking at Twitter, right? You know, the, the, sometimes you got to pick what you want to focus on and, and do things because it, it can just be overwhelming the amount of noise that's out there around these things.
0: Well, yeah. with, without a doubt. And yeah, there's always a, uh, there's always that sense of like, you know, you're feeling like, are, are you missing out because you're, you're not learning this or getting this other knowledge here or there? But like, I think that's like one of the signs you can know if you're on the right path is like, can you point to all the things that you kind of at some level decided uh, you weren't going to go <laughs> search out and everything else, right? Because you're yeah. so focused on something. And I think that I think I'm always uh, I think earlier in my career it was always like, what's the the technological thing? You know, that's always like the worry and stuff. And I, I, I think, mm-hmm. uh, you know, these days, the important part that I always try to think about, like personally and like professionally is, is like, the I think where things really get off the rails, um, and, and what always uh, worries me most is just if you have too much uh, uh, cynicism or, or like complacency that like creeps in, right? And I think that's uh, uh, those are two of the bigger killers for uh, making any sort of progress, whether individually or as a, as a team, right? And it's I think in 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 our industry and um, where you know it is this kind of race that doesn't have a finish line it's easy for those things to kind of creep in. And especially if you've been doing it long enough, right? Because you, you see some level of what's repeating and, uh, the same mistakes happening and so on and so forth. Right. So I think keeping those things, uh, uh in, in check, that doesn't mean put your head in the sand. Right. But I think keeping those things in, yeah. uh, in, in check, uh, is always a, an important thing. So.
1: Yeah, that, that's great. And I think that the, you know, the personal one for me would be the overwhelming information thing, but, more broadly on a professional level, I think the thing I'm still scared of is the, the culture where people will blame the end user. The thing we talked about earlier where they've opened I the fishing this, email, yeah. they're an idiot, they have exposed us to yeah. risk, they've fallen for the MFA thing, they are dangerous, they have exposed us to risk. And actually, the mechanisms you've put around that user, the permissions you've given them, the access you've given them is the thing that has exposed your business to risk. You should accept that a user is going to potentially have their password breached on 100%. The dark 100% they're going to store it in a gmail account your job is to limit the blast radius of that and put in the controls that mean that you know you're not giving them the loaded gun there you're giving them just the tools they need to be able to to do their job
0: yeah i think the the that that like blame the user mentality is probably one of the just dumbest takes in security <laughs> So mm. I, I, I yeah. wholeheartedly <laughs> agree with you, James. It's like, it's, it's, it's by no means an, an easy feat, you know, everything that you got to kind of do as a, as an infosec team. And it doesn't mean that a level of education isn't, isn't helpful, you know, on, on when people should speak up and so forth. Right. But the, uh, uh thinking the problem is your, uh, you know, the, the, the users, um, is, uh, is crazy talk. So yeah, I very much agree with you, man. It's a big culture thing as well.
2: Like, obviously, training is helpful. Encouraging the culture to speak up is incredible. You, you know, if you berate users for making the mistake, they're never going to do that, right? And that—that's yeah. It's really tough to get around. And I—I I said it earlier. It's like I—it it even happens to everyone, right? Like, there is no way we could train an entire population in advance counter-deception techniques to not fall for these things, like. Be a realist.
0: Oh, I love it, James. Love it. Cool.
1: Anything anyone else wants to cover before we wrap this up?
0: I mean, I got to ask the important security question, dude. Halloween, dude. What's your guys' favorite candy? Oh, gosh. If I, can I only pick one? Yeah, and I just realized I might not actually know what your guys' favorite candy even means because you guys are going to no, be coming yeah, what's from... what's candy? From oh, across yeah. The pond, so, yeah, yeah. yeah what... Uh, yeah, sweets? You mean is sweets? That what you- <laughs> You guys, <laughs> you're like, Just sweets, okay, yeah. so wait, what's your favorite sweets then? What's your yeah. favorite Halloween sweets?
2: Halloween themed sweet. Oh, do you know, I'm, I'm a big prolific Haribo straws eater. Like if, if I could like Desert Island, Desert Is it, Island sweets, I'd little Haribo straws. Yeah, like the little okay, gummy, yeah, like okay. the little gummy right. strawberries. Right. Yeah, Solid. one of those. If I, if I had to pick an American oh, okay. candy albanese gummy bears i don't even know i don't even know what the, that is Al- oh just just yeah, like the regular like gummy brand. bear oh it's yeah. a type of gummy bear. yeah like in the white okay. pack with the like red okay top. yeah they're made by albanese that uh, oh i god, have to look like all right
0: james what do you what do you got they are sweets sweet bars or whatever i don't, you guys I don't have them. a
1: halloween specific one although i think uh for anyone who's ever read the reviews of sugar-free haribo bears on amazon uh and the laxative effects they have i think <laughs> they sound like a terrifying candy to eat um there's some fantastic reviews. I was not do if those with the coffee
0: that. chaser in this morning, is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. Personally, I, I, yeah. I. Yeah. Just, just leave, yeah, leave them out we in the we office. I tend to do like a,
1: around this time of year a bit of bonfire toffee, maybe, or some like uh, warming aniseed balls. Oh. Or, or the yeah. thing I do like in, in terms of American candy, you guys have loads of cinnamon things and red hots and uh, you know, hot tamales and all these um, kind of things that I absolutely love. And we just don't get over here. There you go. Anything that's those warming in a winter's
0: day. Yeah. Um, You guys will have to search out, if you haven't had, a Fifth Avenue candy bar. That is the jam. Fifth Avenue. I've never had one of those. Um, By the way, we should probably, in the intro, make sure to call out that, you know, how there's the, you always got to say, you know, to the listener, stay to the end because the most exciting bits at the end. We need you to hear the whole thing. Clickbait. Clearly, everybody (laughs) who stayed till now to listen to us talk about our favorite candy, you're winning. Okay. You're winning.
2: Oh, is like a Fifth Avenue like a knockoff butterfinger? Whoa. Is that, is that, whoa. Which was which was first. Like, which is better. There we go. Might be meeting yeah.
0: our ex co host here, insulting yeah. Fifth Avenue like that.
2: <laughs> we- <laughs> <laughs> so so Fifth Avenue is your favorite. What what's the difference between the two? Because I've had a butterfinger. It's, it's like, a, like
0: a... they're good. It, it's uh I don't know how to put it, more more chocolatey <laughs> and uh and oh, less Okay,
2: yeah, yeah.
0: Awful. Unless less feels like it's gonna stick and tear your teeth off yeah got you yeah that's okay, my scientific yeah. uh, take on it a desirable yeah. finish exactly that's what <laughs> there you go there yeah. you go okay there we go. <laughs> awesome well uh definitely uh happy Halloween to you guys uh I, I could probably keep going and ask you like what you're dressing up as uh mine's an easy answer it's a, a where's Waldo costume because it's literally a hat and a shirt and it's the same one I've done for like 10 years like it. it's very inspiring <laughs> Dang it. Or I could go old school hacker Mayfrey <laughs> costume. I think it's what James is holding up there in that's the That's what camera. I'm going. So I I Googled um, what
1: does a teen hacker look like? So I'm gonna go dressed oh no, like that.
0: Oh no. All right. With that, we're gonna get signed off. Uh thank you guys. I had a lot of fun. This was good to, fun. Uh, yeah, cool to, and you you and guys Mark, take it easy.
1: And thanks to our super producer Jesse and Sarah who wrangles this podcast and makes it possible.
0: Thanks for listening to the Adventures of Alice and Bob Podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.